Well, good morning, everyone. I usually have this mic pack like in a better spot, struggling to get it in there. Well, good morning. My name is Kristen. I'm part of the leadership team here at Novation. And last week, I got to kick off Romans chapter 8. And this week, we are going to finish it up. Last week, we looked at the first half of the chapter, and we looked at how Paul was declaring these really beautiful truths about pursuing life in the spirit and about how we have freedom through life in the spirit. We talked about being free from condemnation, free to pursue the things of the spirit and to turn away from the things of the flesh and free to step into our identity as children of God and as co-heirs with Christ. Well, here in the second half of Romans, Paul takes a turn and he begins talking about suffering. And what I know about everybody sitting in this room or listening online is that you have either come through a season of suffering, you are in a season of suffering, or you will go through a season of suffering. How many people are glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> right? I don't like talking about suffering. I try to avoid suffering at all costs. But the reality is that suffering is part of our human experience on this side of heaven. It's common to all of us. And what we see in Romans chapter 8 is that Paul actually assumes that even for the believer, sometimes especially for the believer, we're going to experience suffering. My son Bryson, he's 17 years old now, but when he was a toddler, when he was two years old, he was so excited to turn three. Like he just, he couldn't wait. And so as we got close to his birthday, every day he would say, mama, how many sleeps till I'm free? Because he couldn't say the TH sound. How many sleeps till I'm free, mama? And finally, it was the night before his third birthday and Joel and I tucked him in and he was like brimming with excitement because he was finally going to be free. So he wakes up on his birthday morning, Joel and I had decorated the kitchen with streamers and balloons and a birthday banner, and Bryson comes toddling into the kitchen, and we're like, Bryson, happy birthday, buddy, you're three. And he just looked at us with the saddest expression you can imagine. And I was like, Bryson, what's wrong? It's your birthday, you're finally three. And he just looked at us and he said, I don't feel free. And he started crying because he had this idea that like three was gonna feel a whole lot different than two. And then when he woke up feeling pretty much the same, he was like really disappointed. He didn't feel free. And that phrase, Joel and I toss it around back and forth to each other over all these years. But the reason I tell you that story is because I think that for us, when we face suffering, all of the truth of Romans 8, being free in Jesus, kind of comes to a screeching halt. And we, like Bryson, say, I don't feel free. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to just consider the reality of suffering, and I want us to ask a question. And the question we're going to consider today is how can we face suffering without losing hope? I see five responses in Romans chapter eight that we're gonna look at. But will you take a moment and pray with me as we get ready to dive in? Oh Jesus, thank you so much for just the good news of the gospel, for the hope that we have in you. 
And God, this morning, I'm just so aware that I don't know the individual stories of everybody listening. I don't know the suffering that has been experienced in this room. And so God, I just pray that your spirit would be such a sweet balm to us today as we explore these words of Paul in Romans chapter eight, that our faith and our hope would just be ignited. God, that we would see past the sufferings of this present world and our hope would just be firmly planted in who you are and what you've done and what you will do. God, I'm very aware of my everyday need for you. And I just ask that you would speak today, that it would be your words that would encourage our hearts. Ask this in your name, amen. All right, so as I said, the question we're gonna consider is how do we face suffering without losing hope? And the first thing that I think we can do is to develop a better vision for the future. Develop a better vision for the future. I wanna start in Romans 8, verse 18. Paul writes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come. Which begs the question, what do we believe about the future? I was driving with my other son, Owen, this week. Owen's 11 years old. And we turned onto a street where the trees were just unreal. Like they were just like ablaze in all the different colors. And I was pointing out a tree to Owen. I was like, oh, look at that one. That one's my favorite. And he said, oh, it's like a little glimpse of heaven. <laughs> and then he said, mom, do you wanna know what I used to think about heaven? And I was like, yes, I do. Totally unprompted by me. And he said, well, I used to imagine that heaven was a big white cloud and in the middle of the cloud, there was a giant throne with a giant Jesus on it. And then there was all these tiny little people crammed in around the throne. And it was really hot and really squishy. And I didn't want to be there. And he and I was like, oh, and this is so crazy that you're bringing this up right now, because I've actually been reflecting on this. I've been reflecting on how important it is that our understanding of this future glory that Paul is talking about is shaped by the scriptures and not by some like vague idea about like disembodied spirits floating around listening to harp music or something. The future that's waiting for us is not boring. It's not monotonous. Our picture of it is incomplete, but there is enough in the scriptures to give us confidence that the future is going to be unbelievable, incomprehensible to us. It is going to be full and robust and exciting and interesting, and we are going to live and learn. We're gonna work, we're gonna feast, we're gonna be in community, we're gonna worship. It is going to be wonderful. And what Paul is saying here is not to minimize our suffering. He's not saying like your suffering doesn't matter, but what he's saying is that his hope for the future was so secure, he was so confident in the goodness that's ahead that it enables us as believers, and Paul, we know he faced a ton of suffering, and he was able to walk through it without losing hope because he was confident in the future. The second thing that we can reflect on when we are asking the question, how do we face suffering without losing hope? We can recognize the tension between our present reality and God's promise. 
When you turn on the news or open your phone and you are bombarded with the headlines, you read about the suffering taking place on the global stage and then also just the suffering that we experience in our daily lives, that our loved ones experience, there's something inside of us that goes, no, it's not supposed to be this way. And there is tension there. There is tension between how things are and how things will be, how things should be. And we have to grapple with that. Let's look at Romans 8, 19 to 25. I'm going to break this up a little bit. So I'm sorry, A.V., just leave the verses up there. <laughs> I should have split them up, and I didn't. Let's start in verse 19. For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay, I'm going to pause there for just a minute. Paul is reflecting back on Genesis 1 through 3. He's reflecting back on the creation narrative and the fall narrative. In our creation narrative, God created the world, and then he said that it was good. Seven times he calls the world good. And then he creates humans to partner with him, to rule and reign over creation, and to take the Eden garden life and to spread it out to the ends of the earth. But Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They didn't trust his word or his character, and they took from the tree that God had reserved for himself. And in doing so, sin entered the world. Evil hijacked the human heart. And the effect of sin is so great that it does not only affect our heart and our human experience, but what Paul is saying here is that it affects the very creation itself, the non-human creation. In verse 20, he said that the creation was subjected to futility. Some translations might read subjected to frustration. And what that word means is an inability to realize its full potential. So creation is subjected to futility in that it's not realizing its full potential. If you were to give me a grand piano, a Steinway grand piano, apparently those are like one of the best kinds I hear. I looked it up. Those cost about $170,000, right? Yeah. If you were to give me that kind of piano, I would think it's beautiful and I would put it in my house and I could maybe bang out three blind mice on it, but I have no musical ability at all. That piano under my management would be subjected to futility. It would not realize its full potential. And that's what Paul is saying is the case for creation itself, that God allowed creation because of the reality of sin to be subjected to futility. But he goes on in verse 21 and he says that the reason it was allowed to be subjected was in hope that creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption. Other ver versions will read its bondage to decay into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The earth itself and everything in it, including you and I, are subject to decay, right? Things fall apart, but that is not the end of the story. Let's keep reading. Picking up in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, 
Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. Let's pause there again. This is an interesting word that Paul uses, groans. The whole creation groans. I'm sure you have experienced this if you've lived long enough. Have you experienced the kind of suffering, the kind of heartache where you can't even put words to it? It's like your intellect is just bypassed completely and all you can do is go, oh, no, no. That's what Paul is saying, that creation itself along with us is doing. But I think this is really interesting. He uses, he compares this kind of groaning, this kind of pain to the, the pain of labor, of childbirth. Now, I have four kids, so I have experienced this four times. And I can tell you that labor pain is some of the most intense pain I've ever experienced in my lifetime. In my first pregnancy, I was pregnant with my first daughter, so I had no like frame of reference for what was going to happen. And I was in labor with her, and I was at like the hardest part of labor. And I was getting to the point that I thought, like, I can't actually do this. I actually said to the doctor, can we just do a C-section? Like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I was dead serious. I was feeling, like, just totally overwhelmed by the pain. And the nurse, seeing the, the place that I was in, to encourage me, said, just a little bit longer. Your baby is coming. You are going to be holding your baby in just a little bit longer. And her words gave me the determination that I needed to push through, literally push through. <laughs> I didn't plan that, by the way. <laughs> and the reality is that she was right. On the other side of those labor pains was my baby, was new life. And that's what Paul is saying here. Our suffering and the suffering of the whole world is not in vain, but there is new life on the other side of it. And then he goes on and he says, it's not only creation that's groaning, but we are groaning. And this I think is really interesting. He says that because we have the first fruits of the spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves. Here's what I think Paul is saying. We, as followers of Jesus, we have like one foot in both worlds. Because on the one hand, we experience the reality of suffering in the world and in our lives. But on the other hand, we have the spirit within us that is doing this new work. We are a new creation, but we're living between like the not yet, right? Like already, but not yet time. Like Jesus already came. We have the spirit. We have been adopted as children of God, but we're not seeing like the full realization of that yet. And that actually increases the tension that we experience in suffering. But then Paul goes on. He doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 24. He says, for in hope, we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see through perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. So when we find ourselves in the tension between the reality of this broken world and the hope that we have in what Jesus is going to do, what this world is going to become at the end of the story, we hang on to hope. We wait eagerly with perseverance. All right, number three. If we want to walk through suffering without losing hope, we must depend on the spirit in our suffering. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Now, in the same way, 
The Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is such sweet scripture for us. When you find yourself in that place of groaning, where your suffering is so great that you can't even find the words to pray, don't pull back. Sometimes when hard things happen, our tendency is to turn inward and to pull back. But what we need to do is we need to open ourselves up to God's presence and activity in our life and press in to the spirit. This is so encouraging that when we can't find the words to pray, God who knows our heart and the spirit who knows the will of God is interceding on our behalf. So instead of turning in, instead of closing off, find yourself a, just a position of open submission. And even if the only thing you can do is groan, trust Jesus, trust that in those moments, the spirit is interceding on your behalf. And then number four, if we're going to walk through suffering without losing hope, we need to place our hope in God's promise and purpose. The verses that we're going to look at next are, I think, some of the most well-known verses out of Romans chapter 8. But I also think that if they are taken out of context or misunderstood, these verses can actually have the opposite effect of what they are intended. And they can actually cause us to lose hope rather than to ignite our hope. Let's read them together. This is Romans 8, verse 28 to verse 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I think sometimes there is a myth that following Jesus is going to make your life easier, is going to minimize your suffering. But as Scott was just saying before the message, Jesus himself said, Look, in this world, you are going to face trouble, but don't worry, take heart because I have overcome the world. The promise is not for an easier life. The promise is not that following Jesus will minimize our sufferings. The next thing I want to draw your attention to is Paul's use of the phrase all things in 8.28. Paul says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. All things in the original language actually means all things. That's what it means. It means the mountaintops and the valleys. It means the joy and the suffering. It means the good things and the bad things. What Paul isn't doing here, he's not calling the bad things good things, but he's saying that all things work together for good. Sometimes I think Christians feel this need to put a, the best face possible on suffering, to like kind of turn that frown upside down or find the silver lining. And in doing so, we actually minimize our own suffering and the suffering of other people. But I think what these verses invite us to do is actually to face suffering head on. 
We don't have to pretend that it doesn't break our hearts when it does. I'm reminded of the story of Lazarus. In John chapter 11, Jesus' good friend, Lazarus, was sick. And so his sister sent word to Jesus, who was doing ministry elsewhere, saying like, hey, you gotta come. Lazarus is really sick. But Jesus doesn't go right away. He actually takes his time. And he tells the disciples, though they don't understand, he tells the disciples, Lazarus is actually dead, but that's not the end of the story. The disciples don't fully understand what he's saying, but then they go and they get to where Lazarus is. And he's been dead for four days by the time that Jesus gets there. And his sisters, Mary and Martha, are devastated. They're weeping and grieving. And as was Jewish custom, all of their community was alongside them weeping and grieving. And Jesus, even though he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, we're told in the scriptures that Jesus became angry, that anger welled up inside of him at the reality of suffering. He became angry, and then he actually entered into the suffering. We're told that Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He didn't call what was bad good, and he didn't tell everybody who was grieving, hey, don't worry about this. I'm about to do something amazing that's going to make this not even matter. Nope. He entered into the suffering alongside the people that he loved. The promise in these verses is not that God will make your circumstances better. Sometimes when we read that God causes all things to work together for good, what we hear is that God will make my circumstances good. And again, that isn't the promise. And if we believe that that's the promise and then God doesn't answer the way we want him to, God doesn't take the broken dream, the relationship that blew up, the health diagnosis, whatever it is, and intervene, we're like, wait a minute, I, I thought you promised. So we need to understand the promise is not for good circumstances. Paul goes on and he tells us the promise is actually that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, sometimes we do have the opportunity in our lifetimes to see the way that God takes something terrible and works it for good and brings beauty out of the ashes. But when that is not the case, God's promise has not been nullified. My sister-in-law was hit by a driver who had been drinking while she was driving about 14 years ago. This guy had prior offenses. He shouldn't have been on the road at all. And he hit my sister-in-law head on. And she was 30 years old and she died. And she had three little girls who at the time were nine, eight, and seven years old. And her death was the first in a domino effect of tragedy that shaped my niece's lives, that they had no choice in, that they had no control over, and that they are still trying to unravel today as young adults. And when I look at that situation, I don't see how God is using it for good. But I am firmly convinced that he is and that he will. And when I doubt it, and I hope this is encouragement to you, when you come into those seasons where you're like, God, I just don't, I don't understand. I don't know how you're gonna work this for good. I think about the cross. I think about Good Friday. We call it Good Friday today. That was the day that Jesus died, the day that he was crucified and buried. But for the disciples who had put all of their hope 
in Jesus. He was their best friend. He, they loved him. And he, who he, they had put all their hope in, was dead and buried in a tomb. They were confused. They were afraid. They were heartbroken. They were disappointed. And they didn't know how to make sense of what had taken place. But what the disciples didn't know is that Resurrection Sunday was just around the corner. On Good Friday, that was probably the worst day of their entire lives. They didn't know that Resurrection Sunday was coming. And Resurrection Sunday is coming for you and I as well. The good that God is working through all things is that we will be conformed to the image of Christ, that the same resurrected Jesus that walked out of the tomb sets the pattern for you and I. We will have resurrection life. It's not a question of if. When Paul says that those that God predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified, what he is saying is that it is a done deal. Predestination, to be predestined to something means that the end result is fixed. People get all twisted up about this term sometimes. They get into fights about, you know, what theological camp you're in. But what Paul is saying here should be of great assurance to us that if we feel like we are barely holding on, Jesus is holding on to us. Our final story has been written. Resurrection life is just around the corner, even if in this life we don't see it. And that's a beautiful, beautiful promise to us. Jesus actually went through all of the suffering that is common to humankind and more. In Hebrews 4.15, we're told that we have a high priest who identifies with our weaknesses, who has been through the suffering that we experience in this life. And Jesus, by submitting himself to suffering, actually conquered sin and death and the evil one. It was through suffering that he rose victorious, and he is the pattern for you and for me. What good news that is for us. In those times of suffering, hold on to that promise. And don't worry when you feel like you just can't hold on anymore. He has you. His grip is ironclad. He will not let you go. Resurrection life is coming. And then finally, the fifth thing that we can do to face suffering without losing hope is to proclaim our ultimate victory in Jesus. In Romans 8, the very last verses in the chapter, 31 to 39, is just this crescendo of confident hope, victorious hope. I want to read it to you. We're going to just close with these beautiful words of Paul. And if you are in a season of suffering right now, I want you to listen to these words. And maybe you even need to just begin day in and day out praying these very words over you and reminding yourself that victory is ours because of Jesus, through Jesus, not because of anything that we've done or how we might manage to make our way through the suffering that we face in this life, but because of what he already did. Listen to this. What then shall we say to these things? to all of the suffering in our world. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, but rather was raised 
who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, suffering, suffering. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Can any suffering separate us from the love of Christ? The resounding answer is no. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Jesus, we just let these words, this declaration of victory wash over us this morning. Jesus, you know the hearts of every one of us in this room. You know where our faith is being tested. You know where we're crying out, no, it shouldn't be this way. And God, I just pray over each one of us that we would have a rock solid conviction about who you are and about the hope that we have that is secure in you. And that as we look to you, as we look to the finished work of the cross, that you would enable us by your spirit to walk through our seasons of suffering, knowing that this is not the end of the story, knowing that resurrection life is around the corner for us. We just proclaim your goodness this morning. We proclaim the good news of the gospel that enables us to face all things, knowing that you are working it together for good. We love you and we praise you this morning, Jesus, in your name. Everybody said, amen, amen.